there are two factors that limit the rate at which transactions are accepted into the Bitcoin blockchain, block time and block size. Block time defines how often a new block is appended onto the blockchain. Block size defines how many transactions fit into a new block. As of March 2018, the current block time and block size allow for about 7 transactions per second to be accepted into the Bitcoin blockchain. In today's episode, we discuss the technical limitations of the Bitcoin blockchain and some potential solutions to scalability, SegWit, and Lightning Network. Today's guest is Peter Ulrich, the host of Explain Blockchain. Explain Blockchain is a podcast I have found tremendously useful as I've started to learn about blockchains. He provides thorough technical explanations of complicated topics, and I recommend subscribing to his show and listening to the episodes multiple times because there's a lot of content condensed into a short amount of time. Over the next month, we're going to be exploring a variety of blockchain-based technologies, and some of the interviews will be high-level conversations. Some of them will be deeply technical and assume a strong understanding of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And some episodes like today's will be aimed at the developer who is just getting started, but going down the rabbit hole and really trying to take this area seriously. So it gets pretty technical in this episode. Don't worry, not every episode that we do about the blockchain will be like this. But I have a feeling that some people who are really going down the rabbit hole will appreciate the level of technical depth in this episode. If you're looking for an internship, you can apply to the Software Engineering Daily internship at softwaredaily.com slash jobs. If you're looking to recruit engineers, you can post jobs for your company there as well. It's completely free to post jobs and to apply. And we're hoping to find interns to contribute at softwaredaily.com slash jobs. The project that these interns will be working on is the Software Daily Open Source Project, which you can find at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily, or you can check out our apps in the iOS or Android app stores. They have all 650 or more of our episodes with recommendations and discussions and much more. And with that, let's get on with this episode. Peter Ulrich is the host of Explain Blockchain, a podcast about blockchain technologies. Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. So you're the host of Explain Blockchain, and that's a podcast I've listened to every episode from. I think there's just four or five episodes, and I know it's time-consuming to make those episodes because your format is... A lot more work-intensive than mine. You do monologues where it sounds like you write them beforehand and they're long-form, very well-written episodes explaining specific aspects of blockchain technology. Why did you start that podcast? Well, Jeff, th first of all, thank you for the compliment. It is certainly a lot of time, but when I started researching this area, so I'm personally a computer scientist and I'm just more interested in the technology, I had the problem that I couldn't find very easily accessible resources to especially go into the depth of the technology behind it. So I was researching more and more. Then I, I just figured I need an outlet to summarize all this knowledge that I gain here. And I started writing articles, but I'm a really terrible writer because I'm a perfectionist on that. And it takes me two days to write one article. So I thought about doing something more audio based and I listened to your podcast, I must say, and also to other very great podcasts. And I thought, well, you know, why not give it a shot? So I started Explain Blockchain a couple of months ago 
And I was basically just summarizing what I was learning along the way. And I hope that I put it in simple terms so that also people who are not necessarily computer scientists can also learn from that and gain something from it. Because I must say that, especially in this ecosystem where, well, nobody really wants to trust anybody. I mean, that's the ground truth of it that people are sometimes also just throwing around terms to make a point. And if you don't understand what they mean, if you just don't understand what the background of this is, then you can also not make an educated decision, I would say. So making this podcast was a way uh, for me to also give back to the ecosystem and to educate the people who are joining it. And what's been so useful for me listening to the podcast is, so like most topics that I cover, I don't have a whole lot of trouble getting to a level six, maybe, or level five understanding out of 10, or level four understanding, whatever, basically, whatever I need to talk about it cogently with a guest. It's, I don't have much trouble with that. But what I've learned is that you can't do that with blockchain stuff, because it's like a totally new stack. And it's it's actually worth learning, and it's worth going rather deep. And I, I kind of feel like People who take themselves seriously as computer scientists or software engineers who want to keep up with the curve, and I mean, they tell you that in, in university even, like they, they will tell you this field moves really fast, and if you want to stay on top of it, you just have to constantly be learning and constantly be doing research. And blockchain technology is like this whole new area of it. And for me, it's it's just, I have to do significant additional labor relative to other topics, and there's no choice and that's why it's useful to have an outlet like a podcast that I can listen to. I listen to yours. I listen to the Epicenter Bitcoin podcast. I listen to Unchained. But I really can't get enough audio content. And it's really complementary to really good written content that's out there like textbooks and mastering Bitcoin and whatnot. So I think it's really important to have it in multiple different formats. But would you agree with me that this is something that basically if you're a software engineer or you're a computer scientist, you really should take this stuff seriously and you should look into it? Or do you think it's a niche? Like, is this just something that only blockchain you know, aficionados should learn about? So you mean blockchain technology or... Yes, I'm trying to say, like, is this something that every software engineer should learn? I would say at least the basics of it, because it became such a buzzword in the last two or three years, especially last year, 2017, that if you're a software engineer, I'm pretty sure your relatives or your boss will have asked you, okay, do you know anything about blockchain? What can we do with it? And if you ask these kind of questions, then I, I find it really valuable if you have at least some kind of a basic understanding, basic knowledge, not necessarily of the really underlying technology, but maybe also about the use cases for which you could use blockchain, for example. So I would like to quote the CEO of Chain, the company. He gave a really good interview at Davos a couple of weeks ago, where he said that you can use blockchain for two main use cases. And one of them is if you want to keep track of updates or if you want to audit yourself. So if you, for example, have a database and you really want to record every update to make you make to that database. So this is the first use case because it, it makes it really easy for you later on to just sum up all the data, put it in a spreadsheet and then give it to, for example, auditing companies or to compliance companies. And it takes away a lot of extra overhead of also storing every update somewhere in a different database. So that's the first use case. And the second use case is if you want to have communication between companies or entities in general without any intermediary. 
And here you also have to be careful because sometimes I must say an intermediary, although you have to trust that intermediary, it's still sometimes more applicable to a use case. So there you really have to look into, can we actually trust a central party? Or if that trust is broken, that's always a good question. Like if that central party is hacked, then will we lose a lot of very sensitive data, for example? And if that is the case, then I would say, okay, maybe rather use something like the blockchain technology to just cut out the intermediary and then have direct peer-to-peer communication. And those are, I think, the two use cases in which you could very well use the blockchain. And to come back to your question, yes, I think just pick up maybe the book Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. I really recommend this book over and over again, also my podcast, because it is a great read, a great introduction to the Bitcoin blockchain particularly. But if you learn that one, the original blockchain, then you really understand also the future developments of blockchain. Definitely. So the two use cases you listed, essentially the ability to checkpoint a database or some kind of data structure that you have in an organization to checkpoint it with a place of public record. And then use case number two, the ability to do transactions without a trusted intermediary. It's funny because neither of those are a currency. I mean, those are things that actually require you to have a currency involved because you have a currency in order to pay the miners to power the system. But that I think that's something that actually confuses people is that a lot of the value of this technology is not in the currency. Would you say that's a common point of confusion? Absolutely. But I also think that it comes from the fact that it started with the currency. So the first blockchain was used for the application of a cryptocurrency. And also now people just talk about cryptocurrencies much more than they talk about blockchain technologies. But yes, in general, I think that the underlying blockchain technology will be much more valuable and will also reach many more areas of the industry than cryptocurrencies. Definitely. So we could talk about basics for a long time, but I want to get into discussing scalability with you because that's what we prepared for. And you have a great episode about scalability. That's what inspired me to reach out to you. So ancillary information on this episode can be found in your in your podcast, in the Explain Blockchain podcast, the episode about scalability. So I think we'll assume that people have a basic understanding of Bitcoin for this episode. And if they don't, they can go back into my back catalog or your back catalog. Regarding scalability, we are talking about the Bitcoin blockchain's scalability. The Bitcoin blockchain is communicated about across the internet. We don't assume that the internet has a scalability bottleneck. I mean, it does have a scalability bottleneck in some sense. You could say that that's what net neutrality is arguing about. But for the most part, we can send around movies and audio files and high bitrate things, whereas Bitcoin has problems even sending around these small blocks of financial transactions. Why does Bitcoin have a scalability problem? Yes, so it is not a problem of internet throughput of the data that is transferred, although it's also part of the architecture, but I will come back to this later. The big problem is actually the computational bottleneck and also the storage bottleneck. So if you go to Bitcoin Core or Bitcoin in general, the underlying architectural decision of Satoshi Nakamoto in the very beginning when 
he or she or the group created Bitcoin was that it should be a decentralized network eventually. And if you want to have a truly decentralized network, you need to make it accessible to almost everybody, ideally really everybody. But not everybody can afford a cloud server or a whole data center. But people like you and I, we can afford like a home computer or maybe Raspberry Pi for a couple of 40 bucks, something like this. And if we are able to use that hardware that is at our disposal to run a Bitcoin node on it, then you will also eventually have many more nodes in that network and they will also make it more decentralized. So the scalability issue of Bitcoin stems from this architectural decision that, first of all, the blockchain shouldn't rise too rapidly. So the, the size of the blockchain shouldn't rise rapidly, which is why we have the one megabyte block size cap or with SegWit, it's around four megabyte now. And that is basically so that you and I can also in 10 years from now on still store the whole Bitcoin blockchain on our Raspberry Pis on our home computers. Sure, it wouldn't be a problem. Like if you take YouTube, right? They have like 400 gigabytes, I think a minute that they have to store somewhere and they are equipped to do that. And they also have the financial resources to do that. But let's say that you want to have a second YouTube. So you want to separate the whole database of YouTube and save it like a second time. Obviously, it's linear increase. So you have double the costs and everything. So these companies they can have such a high throughput because they centralize everything. They highly optimize their own system and so on. But as I said, it's not applicable to the average Joe and we should be able to run the Bitcoin network. So that is the first part that you have the block size cap. And the second factor why Bitcoin has a scalability issue at the moment is the block time. And those are the 10 minutes you hear about every now and then. Satoshi Nakamoto again in the beginning thought that we should only add a block to the Bitcoin blockchain every 10 minutes. And the rationale behind this was that let's say that somebody in South Africa makes a transaction using Bitcoin and the full nodes in South Africa will pick up this transaction very quickly and then also can add it to their own blockchain or can mine it, can try to put it into a block because they have this transaction. But in order to, for Bitcoin to become a truly global network, you need to give the full nodes, for example, in South America and in Asia, enough time to also pick up this transaction. So that means that the transaction needs enough time to travel around the globe, so to say. Back in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto then said, well, let's just use 10 minutes. I'm pretty sure there was some kind of rationale behind it, but... It's just now 10 minutes. And this also then poses the problem that only every 10 minutes you can add a block which has a certain hard cap on the size. So every 10 minutes you can only add so many transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain. And this leads to a theoretical throughput of the Bitcoin blockchain of three transactions per second. And now we can go in the next step if we compare them the Bitcoin blockchain to, for example, the, the Visa network, which has a theoretical throughput of 50,000 transactions per second. And that's only the Visa network. Sure, we have to then make Bitcoin somehow more scalable or to solve this scalability issue in order to compete, for example, with the Visa network. So step back for a moment. People are making transactions across the Bitcoin network all the time. They're taking place in South Africa, in Argentina, in North America. And as these transactions are being created, they're going into the mempool, which is where the transactions that are waiting to be processed sit. And then the miners select 
from the mempool the transactions that will be included in a block. Could you explain that process and explain how miners decide which transactions to add to a block? Absolutely. So when you make a transaction, you will send this transaction to the full node to which you're connected, maybe your own full node, and then also to all the other full nodes around you. So that means that the miner nodes will eventually get this transaction into their, as you said, mempool or memory pool. And then they select the transactions with the highest transaction fees. Now, I assume that you know a little bit about how a Bitcoin transaction looks like, but in general, there are inputs and outputs values. So inputs are previous transactions that you now use to spend Bitcoin further. And the output values are the addresses to which you want to send Bitcoin. Now, if you sum up the input values that you put in, so you take like two or three different transactions, each of them, let's say, has like one, two, and five Bitcoin. So the overall sum is eight Bitcoin that you have as an input. But then in the output, you only send, let's say, seven Bitcoin to a certain address, and the one Bitcoin you leave unspent. So you don't send it back to yourself, or you don't send it to anybody else. This difference between the input and the output is called the transaction fee and then be collected by the miner once they use uh, they take your transaction and put into a block so the thing here it's a free market so if you now want to have your transaction be on top of the list of transactions that go into the next block then you also have to pay relative to the other transactions that are in the mempool a relatively high transaction fee well the highest transaction fee And this led to the problem that in the end of 2017, where you had a very lot of transactions going to the mempool, that you had to pay very high fees, like around almost 40 US dollar on average, so that your transaction would be part of the next or the over next block. But luckily, in the last month or so, actually, this fee dropped tremendously down to a couple of cents now, I think. So this is not a problem anymore, luckily. Why did it drop so precipitously? That's a very good question. So one reason for this or a believed reason is that, well, in December, you had a very strong, a very fast adoption of regular users of Bitcoin. So it, it was all over the press. A lot of people learned about it. And then they also started to make Bitcoin transactions. And these Bitcoin transactions, for example, mostly came from exchanges where people were buying Bitcoin with a normal currency, with a fiat currency. And then they were sending that Bitcoin to their own wallets where they can control that Bitcoin. And all these transactions from and to exchanges and also between people and so on just filled up the mempool. So there were around 160,000 transactions in the mempool, but only a 1,000 or so can always go into a block. And then people still needed to make transactions or they wanted to have quick transactions and then they st just started paying more. It's a, it's a um, supply and demand problem there. So just to sum it up, in the last month or so, we saw that first of all, there were uh, fewer transactions made just by because the adoption dropped because the price dropped. Uh, we also saw a change with Coinbase. So the Coinbase is the biggest exchange for Bitcoin. And what they did is they first of all used implemented a batching system so that they didn't send out transactions for every single purchase of a customer, but they batched these purchases together into one transaction. So instead of, let's say, like a 10 or a 100 different transactions, they only collected those into one single transaction. So that also led to a decrease of the transaction fees eventually. Hmm. So in that high traffic period where there's thousands of transactions waiting in the mempool, 
to be processed and only seven transactions per second or something like that is are being processed. If I don't pay a high transaction fee and I submit a transaction, does that transaction ever get processed or could it just sit backlogged and never make it into a block? Absolutely. So if you pay a very low fee, then it could happen that you just don't get into the blocks in the next time. And I think there's a limit to how long such a transaction can stay in the mempool until it's just disregarded, which is around two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So after two, yeah, after two weeks, if your transaction wasn't processed, then it would become unvalid and then you have to make a new transaction. But there is a way for somebody who would have such a transaction to know that, right? Like they could check blockchain.info and see their transaction sitting in the mempool or eventually evicted from the mempool, right? Exactly. So the thing is, mostly you make a transaction using a wallet that handles all these like creation of a transaction and so on for you. And there are quite some wallets that had very bad algorithms to determine what the optimal transaction fee is. I think Coinbase was one of them that was called out. And I only know about Coinbase that was called out because the algorithm to estimate the transaction fee was skewed. So they always paid much higher transaction fees. The problem with this is, again, that the mempool or the memory pool, it's not a global state. It's only what a full node has in their memory pool. So every full node has an own memory pool. And then if some exchanges or some, let's say, exchanges have their full node where they have a lot of transactions that have a very high transaction fees, then they would also recommend a higher transaction fee to their customers. But then you also have individuals who have their own full node and they only see that, well, there are not that many transactions with very high transaction fees. So they have a different estimation of the transaction fee that they should pay. So it's very difficult to come up with this magic number of how much you should pay. Yeah, because so as you said, each of these full nodes has their own mempool and they're solving their own blockchain puzzle based off of the transactions in that mempool. And if your transaction is not in their mempool, they're not even going to be trying to solve your puzzle. I mean, do the full nodes aggressively share the different transactions that are in their mempools? Or is that more of a lazy kind of thing? Or do they only share them when a block gets discovered? Yeah, so what the full nodes use, two systems. One of them is the flooding algorithm. So whenever they get a transaction, they just send it to every full node they're connected to. And if they already received that transaction, then they just disregard it. And the second algorithm is the gossip algorithm. So just every now and then they connect to the other full nodes and just share the transactions that they received. In general, I just wanted to point out that full nodes don't necessarily mine the blocks. So you said that a full node in the mempool, they will take the transactions and try to make a block out of that. That is not necessarily the case. You can, I mean, miners also are full nodes, so they have their own mempool and from which they take the transactions. But you don't necessarily need to mine if you have a full node. So... I mean, how often are the miners, are they consistently trying to process the same blocks as each other? Like, are they consistently sharing the same set of transactions so that they are chasing after the a similar set of blocks? Or, or how often is it that they're chasing after disjoint sets of blocks? I'm just trying to get a feel for how different the mempools are. 
I am not sure whether they would purposely not share transactions with other miners or full nodes. Because you could imagine they could just wait around and, you know, oh, if we've got a bunch of like large transaction fees that we can get from these transactions. Maybe we should just hold them. But I guess those transaction fees are pretty small relative to the actual award that you get. At the moment, yes. But in general, it's also if these miners that just hold back transactions would create a block that includes transactions that no other full node has, that block would not be accepted by the other full node at first. They would hold it back until they also receive the transactions because then only they can validate the transaction they hold in the mempool against the transaction that the miner put into the block. So a miner is also, through that, incentivized to share the transactions they receive. Otherwise, other nodes will not accept his block. But what you said is very true. So let's say you have a miner in China and a miner in America. Obviously, these two will have quite different memory pools because in China, you have more maybe transactions from China, America, vice versa from America. But sharing these transactions between the full nodes doesn't take too much time. It should take a couple of seconds only. So sure, you have differences, but I don't believe that they're very significant. Okay, so to go back to the scalability question, we've got this question of block time and block size. So these are two different variables that we could potentially change, or I guess we did end up changing with with SegWit. So what are the different options? Like if we were to change block time or block size, how does that affect the scalability of a blockchain? Sure. So first of all, the block size. Well, basically every 10 minutes, you can add more transactions to a block. And that is fine at first, then also use more transactions and put them onto the blockchain. But your blockchain will also rise quicker. And this is not a problem at the moment. I mean, if you think about the fact that the Bitcoin blockchain until now is only 140 gigabytes, you can still store it on an external hard drive. But the problem here is also scalability in the long term. So let's say that the only solution you have is increasing the block size until you meet demand or the use that the Bitcoin network has. So let's say you want to scale the Bitcoin network to San Francisco, for example. Then you already need uh, gigabyte blocks which can hold all the transactions that are made in the metropolis, the area of San Francisco. Then you already have a problem because you have to download gigabyte blocks within the 10 minutes to also verify them and also add to your own blockchain. And if you want to scale this further, if you want to scale this to the level of the Visa network, then you already get, I think, like eight or nine gigabyte blocks. And that also leads to multiple terabytes per year. So that is then again, not accessible to the average Joe anymore. So you also get fewer people running full nodes because they can't afford having or adding terabytes of hard drives every year. And that also leads to a more centralized network eventually because only fewer people can run a full node, only those that can afford it. And then also only fewer people can, will hold and verify and mine the transactions on the Bitcoin network. Here's a a naive question. So if it's all transactions, like we've just got a bunch of transactions in the mempool and we're turning those transactions into blocks, why does the size of the block matter? We're just handling N transactions. Are we ultimately just like all these full nodes are just holding transactions and why would the block size actually matter? It's that's just the where you're slicing these a series of transactions into. Yeah, so the block size matters for two reasons. One of them is only the problem that you have to store it because a full node has to store the whole blockchain from 2008 on until 2018 at the moment. 
And if you increase this size of the blockchain rapidly, so if you increase the block sizes, then, well, in a year's time or two, you will not have 140 gigabyte, but you will have multiple terabytes. And that's not something that somebody like an average show can just store like that. And the second problem is that if the block size becomes very large, then also not a average household or an average person can download that block within the 10 minutes until they receive the next block. So let's say that you have to download every 10 minutes, eight or nine gigabytes of data. If you increase the block size rapidly, then at one point, just normal people just can't download the block anymore within the 10 minutes until they get the next block already. And that also means that they can't verify and validate that all the transactions are valid. And then also that the next block is also in a valid way added to the old block. So it becomes a problem of bandwidth to download the block, and it also becomes a problem of computational power to verify the block. So that's why there's a threshold for the average person to hold the blockchain. So is that to say that there is always this large mempool of transactions that are waiting to be received, and the block size determines how rapidly the mempool is depleted? Uh, Yes. Well, again, a supply and uh, demand problem. So if you have the same amount of transactions that you have at the moment, so the demand to be put in the block, and then you increase the supply, so you increase the block size and the capacity of adding blocks, then yes, you would have a decrease of the mempool in the long term. But then also if the demand steadily rises with the block size, so the demand rises with the supply, then you have the same situation as we have now where you still, well, a month ago had to pay 40 US dollar to get into the next block. I see. So if that block size increase happened, then people would eventually realize, oh, it's actually getting cheaper to transfer money on the blockchain because things are happening faster transactions are getting accepted faster which is making it cheaper so you know and it ultimately could end up being a tax on the miners because they are the ones who would have to store all i guess all full nodes but mainly the miners because they're the ones who are i guess predominantly going to be storing this entire chain and i guess that gets us to why this was there was so much debate around this is that correct Yes, that's very true. So there are some people in the ecosystem that think, well, it should be a free market and whoever can pay for the computational power and the bandwidth, well, it's just, you know, able to pay. So those who don't pay or can't pay, well, you know, it's bad for them, but I don't care. That's more like the free market approach to changing the parameters of the Bitcoin blockchain. On the other side, you also have the more, well, not necessarily altruistic, but more incorporating approach by, for example, the Bitcoin core team that say, well, you know, we as a network are only as strong as the the lowest, so to say, network full node. So if the lowest full node with the least computational power and bandwidth can still hold a full copy of the Bitcoin blockchain, then we will also have more nodes. So we are only as strong as the lowest full node. So if we, if we have the block time, that would be essentially the same as doubling the block size, right? Yes, very true. So then you also add more blocks faster to the blockchain, and that also means it increases in size faster. But the problem is that not only every transaction then can reach all the nodes in the network, and there will also be a disbalance of 
power among the miners, for example, where some miners hold more transactions and can also pick and choose their transaction fees, and some miners don't get as many transactions and just can't keep up with the other miners anymore. Okay, so I think we've outlined the scalability problem as reasonably as we can do in audio format. Let's start to talk about some solutions, some solutions to scalability. So first, there's SegWit. So segregated witness, it has two parts. It's got a new structure for transactions and a new way to calculate the block size. So in order to get there, maybe we could just refresh people on what is in a block. Like just give an outline for the the different fields that are in a block. Absolutely. So you first of all have the input section where you use your unspent transaction outputs from previous transactions to make future or to make a new transaction. So you use a past transaction that you haven't spent yet and use it as some kind of proof that you are still holding or owning a certain amount of Bitcoin. So you put this in the input field and then you also put the unlocking script for that particular transaction. So the unlocking script is a, well, at least on the Bitcoin network, is a combination of your public address from which you took that unspent transaction and a signature of that transaction. So that means that you as the owner of the public private key pair, you sign or you encrypt the date of the transaction and basically add it to the input. And what the script that, it's a little bit technical here, but just follow me. So what the script in the input field in the transaction then can do is take your public address, decrypt the signature with it, and then see whether the transaction data you encrypted is the same as the transaction data that you put into the transaction. So it's a verification that you own the public-private key pair to which these Bitcoins were sent. There was a very low, low level, but that's in general the input section. And then you have the output section, which is easier. It's just the address to which you want to send the Bitcoins and the value of how many Bitcoins you want to send. That is the output section. And then you also have a third section, which is the block header. And in the block header, you have a couple of meter information about the block. So the block height, for example, so what number this block is in the long chain of the blockchain. Also the Merkle tree root, which is a verification or a signature of the data that is in the block. And also some other things like a timestamp and a version of the node you are running and these kind of things. And one of those parts is known as the witness. What does the witness refer to? So the witness is what I just explained, the input or the unlocking script that unlocks your transaction so that you can use it for making other transactions with it. Wait, it's the input or is it the output field? It's the input field. The input field. Okay, got it. So yeah, the input field, it's an ID of a UTXO, which is an unspent transaction because you don't actually just hand around bitcoins, you hand around transactions. And so the input field has the unspent transaction, and then it has an unlocking script, which defines how that UTXO can be unlocked. And then the output field, which is not the witness, the output field has the address of the recipient and then your own address for the remainder coins. So the input field is what we're talking about here. The ID of the UTXO that you have not, that you're addressing to somebody, and then the unlocking script, which defines how your UTXO is going to be spent. 
And SegWit proposed moving the unlocking script. So let's just talk a little bit. What is an unlocking script? What's the purpose of this unlocking script? Why is that a field in a Bitcoin transaction? Absolutely. So it becomes a little bit technical here, but I will try to explain it in uh, simple terms. First of all, a transaction can be made to any public address. The public address is the public key of a private public key pair. Now, if you want to prove that you are the owner of this private public key pair, what you do is you take the transaction, the UTXO, and you encrypt it with your private key. So you just take all the data that's in there, encrypt it, and get a, a signature out of it. Then you use this signature in the combination with your public key and use it as an input parameter to the locking script of the transaction. So the locking script, it's actually a, a very short script. It's a program that you can execute and it is written in a language called script. It's a very low level, a very basic, but therefore also very secure programming language. And you can add any input parameters to the script. You run the script and the script decrypts again the data you put in, so the transaction data. It checks whether that data you put in is equal to the data of the transaction. And if this is all the case, then it will just return true. And if it returns true, this is the proof that you are the owner of the private-public key pair. Is that uh, better or... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely as good as we're going to get. And by the way, like, I want to just address the fact that this stuff is really hard to explain over audio. And I think you have probably learned that. I have certainly learned that in, in past episodes I've done. And this is definitely a learning experience for both of us. And I'm sure this stuff will get easier to understand over time as we move up the stack. But I'm glad we're doing this. I'm glad we're continuing to go through the stuff that's difficult to understand, because I know that people want to hear about this low-level stuff, and I think we're just doing the best we can. We'll continue to refine our ability to explain it over audio. With that said, the SegWit proposal moved the unlocking script out of the transaction. Explain the motivation for that, and what does that actually mean, moving the unlocking script out of the transaction? Absolutely. So first of all, I would also, because you mentioned it already, it's very hard to explain this via audio. And I can only recommend again here the book Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos, which is also uh, freely available on GitHub. So if you really want to understand this in more depth, then I would really recommend looking up this book. It explains it perfectly. But now back to your question. So the problem with this script or with having these unlocking parameters inside the transaction, that means, well, basically the whole transaction is just a key value dictionary or map. So it's like a data structure, that's it. And somewhere in this data structure, in this key value map, you have then the input parameters. But this poses a problem which is called transaction malleability. And that means that Let's say you put in your two parameters, your public key and the signature. Um, what you also then do to, um, to create a block eventually, whether what the miner does in order to create the block, is it creates a Merkle root of all the transactions that are in the block. So I won't explain what the Merkle root now is, but it's basically a signature of the data that is inside the block. And here comes a problem, because if you, let's say, have a transaction, you put in the two input parameters, but then you add different parameters to it. It could just be random data, and then you have a sort, sort of drop command. So you just, everything you put in, you just drop, disregard it, and then you put in the true parameters. 
this would still unlock the transaction. So the transaction you make, it's still valid and it will still be included in the block. But the eventual Merkle tree route, this way around, will change. And also the transaction ID of your transaction, which is also a signature of the data that's in there, will also change. So that makes the unique ID of a transaction changeable by just adding some random data to the unlocking script. And that this means that you can't trust or you can't reuse the transaction ID of a transaction for making uh, future transactions. So let's say that you want to create a chain of transactions, like two or three different transactions, but all these transactions you create before you put it into a block somewhere. Now, if you now change the very first transaction, if you just add some random data to the input, you change that ID, and then the second transaction will just point back to a transaction that might not exist yet. So this poses a problem if you want to chain together a couple of transactions with, before you let each transaction hit the blockchain or let be included in a block. Sorry, just to sum up, this is the transaction malleability problem. And uh, SegWit tried to or did solve this problem by just taking out the unlocking script and put it into a different section. So again, you have the key value map, and then you just have a high level key, like a different section that's just called witness. And this witness section then holds the changeable parts of your transaction. So the locking script and so on. And it will not be included if you create this unique signature of a transaction, which is the transaction ID. So if you create a transaction, you cannot and you create the ID of it, then you can be 100% sure that this transaction ID will not or cannot be changed afterwards anymore. It's unique for the data. And this enables you to make, again, transactions based on the original transaction before the original transaction hits the blockchain in general. And this will is a very perfect lead up to the Lightning Network, which I hope we will talk about soon. Definitely. Just to recap, though, why did SegWit reduce the burden of the blockchain scalability problem on Bitcoin? So because it also added a second feature, a feature to the transaction. And this is regarding the block size and also the transaction size. Before this, the block size was calculated by only using the raw size or the raw uh, storage that a block takes up. So how much space it takes up on your hard drive. But with SegWit, this was changed to a weighted system. And instead of, well, just taking the, the space, it gave points, so to say, for every byte you have in the transaction area, so in the input-output area. And it gave a different way to everything you had in the witness area. And the weight switch is four for every byte in the input-output area and one for every byte in the witness area. And um, then also the overall block size, so the hard cap on the block size, was also changed to a weighted system where you could have 4 million of these weight points, so to say, in every block. So this means that the way you calculated the block size changed to a weight system. And this practically increased the block size of the block to uh, something a little bit underneath the 4 megabyte. So it effectively created the block size as well. And that, again, led to 
a decrease in the mempool because you could just use more transactions, put them into blocks. And also it decreased your transaction fee because before that you also kind of had to pay for how big your transaction is because if you have a very large transaction, then the miners couldn't put smaller transactions into a block. So by making very large transactions very costly and incentivizing smaller transactions, you also decrease the transaction fees for people who just make normal transactions. Okay. So was that what led to, for example, Coinbase doing this kind of batching? Because it sounds like they incentivized people to do that kind of batching. They incentivized people to, if they could, make their transactions for bigger amounts. Exactly. Sorry, I, I think I made a little mistake there. Because with having the four weights or the four points on the input-output data and only a one weight on the witness data, you actually incentivize having more input-outputs in the same transaction. Because previously, the witness data, so the unlocking scripts, actually took up around 70 to 75% of the overall size of a transaction. And now with SegWit, you could put in many more transactions into the input-output sections and then also add all this extra data, the 70-75% of data to the witness section where it would be weighted lower, where it would be more cheap to add it to. So this actually led also to uh, Coinbase to start creating bigger blocks or bigger transactions because they could save basically on that. Okay. Well, I think we've discussed SegWit as much as we have time for, and we should get on to Lightning Networks. People, again, can listen back to your episode for more on SegWit. So Lightning Network, this is an example of an off-chain solution. Explain what an off-chain solution is. So off-chain solutions are any solutions that take transactions off the Bitcoin blockchain. And that means that if we were to make transactions, that we don't have to wait for every transaction to actually be included in the blocks and added to the blockchain. And Lightning Network, for example, is one of these solutions because it enables just two parties to make direct payments between each other. So not every payment needs to be added to the blockchain, but only, first of all, funding payments, and then also later on settlements or settled transactions. So we could make 100 or 1,000 transactions back and forth between people, but then only two of these transactions, so the funding, the beginning, and the settlement, the last transaction, would be put onto the Bitcoin blockchain. So the Lightning Network is like a system of payment channels. So you have these payment channels that you set up with somebody else and you communicate to the, the blockchain itself that you're opening a payment channel with somebody else and you create a what's called a time lock contract when you do that. And then you can transact with somebody else off chain for a while and then I guess the time lock contract eventually it runs out or you finish doing your payments with that other person and then eventually your off-chain interaction is reconciled with the main chain. Is that correct? That's correct, Okay. Yes. So what are the challenges around that? Because that sounds like a very useful way of doing scaling because we're talking, you know, what we addressed earlier is that the main problem is that you have all these transactions that want to be processed by the main chain so if we can just take some of those transactions off of the main chain, because the frequent problem is like, you know, you open a tab at the bar and want to just like buy a drink and then you want to buy another drink and then you want to buy a drink 
two days later. And then maybe you go to the same bar and it's a coffee shop during the day and you get a cup of coffee. You don't want to have all of those transactions on the main chain. It would be much better to just have one transaction that goes on to the main chain that covers all of your cups of coffee and drinks with that bar. So that sounds like a very useful way to scale the blockchains, just move these transactions off. So what are the challenges to doing that at scale? So the challenges are actually only one big one, actually, because if you want to use it at scale, so you want to use it with multiple or many different other parties, then you need or you would have to need to create a payment channel with every single one of these entities. So whenever I want to trade with a new, let's say, online web store, I first have to create a payment channel with this web store before I can make these Lightning Network payments. But this is eventually costly again, because then you have to make one funding transaction to open the payment channel, you send money back and forth, and then again, you close also the payment channel afterwards. So the challenges here is actually to not have these direct payment channels, but rather to have a network. Because I don't need to have a direct payment channel with a web store. I could, for example, have a payment channel with a friend of mine or with a different web store that then again has a payment channel with that particular web store. And these people then become intermediaries. And if I want to send any money to that particular web store, I have to, well, trust these intermediaries here again. Because I can just send money to my friend, for example, but that friend might not send or forward the money to the web store that I want to pay. So then you have the trust issue again. And here actually what the Lightning Network does is it uses these hashed time-locked contracts that you talked about earlier. And that means they actually, you make a transaction to your friend that can be resolved or that can be spent again or used in two different ways. And one of them is the time-locked part of it. So actually I make a payment to my friend and I just say, well, if this friend doesn't unlock this transaction, so doesn't use this transaction, then I will just be refunded within, let's say, 30 days. So within 30 days, I get my money back. I know that for sure. And then the second part to unlock this transaction is the hashed part of it. And this means that the transaction I make can be unlocked with a certain random data that I put in. And let's just call this data R. This data R is actually created by the web store that I want to pay. And the web store only creates a hash of the data and gives it to me. I use this hash and include it in the payment to my friend. And let's be in an ideal world here. The friend then also pays the web store and also sends forward the hash of the data. And the web store knows, okay, this hash is equal to the hash of the data that I hold back. So I know this payment comes from Peter, from me. And this web store then would also, in order to spend this transaction, have to broadcast the data R. So it will also be received by my friend who can then use this data R to unlock the my payment that I made to my friend. So he also gets his money. And I eventually also receive R and I can prove with this that the web store actually got the money. Okay, let's go a little high level in this. And by the way, you should definitely come back on in the future. And the next episode, <laughs> we're, we're going to do something a little yeah, more high level. Like I think we, should, we definitely should because I love talking to you. But this is like so low level that it's funny because I know that there's like 15% of the audience that just absolutely loves this stuff. Because I actually, I was looking for like a very technical Bitcoin audio material when I first kind of started getting into this and there just wasn't much. And it's like, 
you can't listen to this kind of audio when you're maybe working out or something, but if you're maybe washing dishes is so mindless that you can completely focus on what you're listening to. I think this is the perfect type of material to listen to if you're studying Bitcoin, but you have to wash dishes. So for the 15% of the audience that's washing dishes, I hope you appreciate this material. The other like 85% is going to be like, well, you know, maybe it'll be useful to them. Maybe not. We'll see. This will be an interesting experiment to run. But I feel like I've done very technical shows in the past that people have really liked, like, you know, shows on database indexing or, you know, stuff like that with like, oh, my God, I totally loved that show. It was right up my alley. And so, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. So there is like kind of some debate around Lightning Network. So you take somebody like Andreas and he seems very bullish on Lightning Network. He seems like, from my point of view, he just seemed like, okay, the Bitcoin is the main chain, and right now we're just using it for everything. And of course, it's going to have scalability issues. But we'll build up these second layer solutions, which honestly sound a lot like what we've built on top of internet protocols, our, our abstractions on top of abstractions on top of abstractions. Why wouldn't the same thing happen for Bitcoin? As far as I can tell, that's kind of Andreas's bullish case for Lightning Network. It's like, we'll, we'll relieve the main chain of transactions, and we'll eventually just get really, really powerful Lightning Networks that we can transact with each other across, and we'll have decentralized Venmo and decentralized everything financial. First of all, correct if I'm wrong about that, but what are the bearish cases for Lightning Network? Why wouldn't that work as a scalability panacea for Bitcoin? Yes, I think it's a more ideological discussion here because you always have the purists who just want to use the Bitcoin Core software as it is and just really want to stick to the ideology and the idea of Satoshi Nakamoto. And I can totally understand this. It's a very valid point, but especially because this whole project is a software engineering project, it is very hard to keep you know, version 1.0 for more than 10 years. You always have to make updates. You always have to improve on things. You will run into new use cases and discover edge use cases that you have to solve and that you have to cover as well. So from a software engineering point, it is just natural this, that Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrencies in general develop over time. And that's good because, yes, this way we can use Bitcoin in many more areas. We can expand it. It becomes cheaper. It enables more people to have a bank account and make payments across borders and these kind of things. So I think that's also what Andreas comes back to. So he is an idealist. He's a very, I don't like the word, but a thought leader. So he's looking ahead. That's what I mean. And if he looks ahead, he sees that the current Bitcoin Core software as it is, is not able to scale very well. So obviously we need to make some changes. But on the other side, as I said, you always have the purists who say, no, we don't want that. We want to stay as it is. It is not according to Satoshi Nakamoto's idea. We can maybe tweak the parameters a little bit like Bitcoin Cash does with the block size. And this should be fine as well, right? Well, it depends on how you want to look at this project. So here's what I don't understand. Because I did a show about Lightning Network's like a year and a half ago with uh, with somebody from Blockstream. And this was long before I had any sort of ability to talk about Bitcoin at the level I can now, which is still really limited. But it was somebody from Blockstream, and I thought Blockstream was like the epitome of Bitcoin core conservatism. Maybe I'm mistaken, but I mean, since they were working on Lightning Network, it seems like this is a solution even for the conservatives. 
Yes, I don't know why they work in it, but I think, you know, you always have to innovate, innovate on, in this field. And especially Blockstream that wants to stay at the cutting edge of technology, they also have to invest in this. But again, it just comes down to your ideology and what you believe in. So are there a large number of Bitcoin core developers that are not fans of Lightning Network? Or is it like a really, really small but loud minority? I actually don't know. <laughs> hmm. All right. Interesting. So you mentioned Bitcoin Cash. What did Bitcoin Cash do differently? So they only increased the block size. So they increased it, I think, to around four megabyte now or maybe eight megabyte already. So they just tweaked the parameter of the original Bitcoin Core software. And they also didn't want to use SegWit because they were also like, well, this SegWit changes the original format that was created by Satoshi Nakamoto of the transactions. And we don't want that. And one other reason they gave was also because the SegWit proposal, SegWit format, is a soft fork of the Bitcoin network. And that means that older nodes that don't run the latest software, including the SegWit format, can still accept the new SegWit payments. And the problem there is only that the old nodes, they only see that the SegWit payment they receive can be spent by anybody because the SegWit format has a different format there. So for the old nodes, they can't from that point on anymore verify whether somebody is allowed to spend a SegWit transaction, for example. So that's why they, the other idea then was that if you as a full node owner don't want to upgrade to the latest version, then you're just left behind. And maybe eventually they will also cut off that compatibility so your access to the bitcoin network so that is another argument that came from the bitcoin cash community okay Pierre, it's been great talking to you i guess to close off what are you working on these days i think you're working on your master's thesis so what kind of stuff are you researching Absolutely. So at the moment, I just started my master thesis at a company here in the Netherlands. And we are researching how you can use the blockchain to improve the processes in education. So we would like to see how you can put certificates on the blockchain, how you can also give a self-sovereign identity to students, for example, that the students are really in control of the documents and the data. And for this, I research different blockchain technologies. Okay, well, that's awesome. Everybody can check out Explain Blockchain if you want to hear Peter's fantastic material. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you making the effort to explain these really complicated topics over audio because that's my preferred format for long-form material. Although I fully admit that with blockchain stuff, you kind of have no choice but to look at some diagrams sometimes. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having me. And I can only recommend to check out also multiple mediums. So yes, I also like podcasts, but they're also really great visual uh, mediums on YouTube and also great books. So, well, I personally am more interested in the technology behind it. So I can also recommend the uh, Bitcoin Wiki. And they really explain all these topics like SegWit and Lightning in accessible terms. But if you really want to dive deeply into the technology, then you can also do that there because they also reference different resources. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Wow. 